And when I say technology, I mean uh, insightful work. You know, coffee is one of the largest, it's the second largest traded commodity in the world uh, next to oil. There's, it's a, ma a main amount of coffee that travels around the world, but it also is this huge economic boom. And, uh, but it is also fraught with um, uh, labor troubles, uh, you know, everything from indentured servitude to slavery, uh, underpayment, and then also environmental issues and on and on. And, uh, and so we work hard to, uh, to help develop farms, but also work with farm farms that are, are doing good practice already. And this is one of those farms. It has, um, the way it's, it's taking and using every natural resource and returning it to the soil and caring for its workers, you know, everything from healthcare and, um, and, and the, this includes migrant workers. They're providing housing, their healthcare, three meals a day, you know, taking care of these people, taking care of the land. It's, it truly is inspiring. And uh, um, while I was down visiting, they took me to a neighboring farm because they said, we wanna help this guy out. We wanna help build him into what we're doing. Will you come and see the farm and see what's going on? So we went to visit this other farm and it had, um, in some sense, the complete opposite. The trees were neglected, everything, the forest was clear cut, the soil was leached, the, uh, the land was, a, was clearly abused, the animals were emaciated, as we sat and, and they hosted us, the, his wife prepare, prepared a meal for us and we sat and talked and all he did was just yell at, him, at her the whole time. And, uh, um, and we walked away disheartened, like there's so much that this farmer needs, where do we begin and how do we work with him? But I think what really um, got me in the midst of this was this question you know, that I would pose to you guys, which one of these two farms and their owners were Christian? And sorry to say, the answer is the second one. It's the one who uh, would invoke the name of Jesus and talk about how he would attend church and engage in, in, uh, in, in you know, prayer and, and all of that stuff. He talked the talk, but his life didn't show it. Where this other farm seemed to have so many good things going on, and, uh, and, and whether they believe or not, it's not a um, priority for them. And, uh, and, and yet they're getting so many things right. How is it possible that somebody that could be speaking the word um, so freely in Jesus' name and yet be completely disconnected from what the gospel really is all about? The other example I want to share is the, um, in Pittsburgh. <clears throat> The steel city from years and years past, the north side of Pittsburgh was just abused and used to the point of degradation that nobody wanted to live there. And, uh, and so Pittsburgh, um, a number of years ago, decided that they were going to take this area and renovate it. And that's when they designed PNC Park. They called upon a guy named David Grussell. He's a Christian architect. And uh, um, I've had the opportunity to attend a number of his talks. I've read all his books about community development and forming cities and plans and everything. Truly amazing. And he would specifically, through his architecture, look at life and talk 
talk in a way that you could tell he, he came from a faith perspective, and yet he was completely um, ingrained in his love for architecture. He would design cities and neighborhoods and buildings in such a way to foster life, you know, something so important in our Christian message. He would incorporate uh, sunlight. He would incorporate green space. He would incorporate communal space. He would design it in such a way that the people, when they lived and work in these communities, in these neighborhoods, in these buildings, they would thrive because they felt good. There was something that he understood about the built environment that's different because he was seeing it through a lens of faith. It's amazing. I love, you know, you should look up some of Grussell's books and whatnot. Really interesting. But we're going to hash this out a little bit today. Specifically, we're going to dive into, um, first off, kind of do two parts. We're going to dive into the theology of what does it mean to do everyday worship? What is that? And why does it matter? And then we're going to get practical. Whatever time we have left, we're going to start breaking it down and really talk about what is happening practically and how are some things, you know, what are some things we can do as we work and, uh, and uh, live together. <clears throat> and so um, we're going to be in Scripture a lot, so I would encourage you to have your uh, Bible apps or Bibles on hand. We're going to be spending a lot of time in that. Again, we'll go as far as my voice will go. So far, so good. And, uh, <clears throat> but let's open with a word of prayer. Lord God, will you open our hearts that we may hear what you have in store for us today. And I pray, Lord, that you will use me as your vessel, no matter what I bring. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All, right. All right, so here's my case. So, number one, being a Christian is a whole lot more than just about getting saved for a future world, because it neglects our original design of, God, of what God created us to do. In other words, we place tomorrow as being more important than today. But God specifically tells us in Scripture and literally has designed and commissioned us to focus on today. We'll work this one out in time. Two, being a Christian is a whole lot more than just trying to be good. Because just being good ignores the history of the human story and the struggles of good and evil that have gone before us and through us. And it denies the remarkable work of Christ. We need to live and work in the reality of grace. And three, if we are designed and commissioned to be focused on today, and by doing so, we are to be engaged in the tension of this brokenness and beauty of this world through Christ's redeeming grace and love for the world, then it is by our actions every day and not just through the songs we sing on Sunday that we offer up worship to God. Let me say it another way. Being good is nice. It's generally helpful to those around you. Knowing that you're saved by God and have a future eternal hope for in Him, that's critical. And it could and should potentially be life transforming. But as Paul puts it, that means you've just been accepted into the race, right? And then he says, now it's time for you to run it. Are you going to stay in your warm-up suit and just keep stretching out and limbering up by going through the motions and just attending church on Sundays? 
Or are you going to run this Christian race by letting Christ work in you to transform every aspect of your life so that by fully living your life, you are offering up worship to God? It says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to attest and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Or as Eugene Peterson puts the same passage, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize that what He wants from you and respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down into its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. That's what we're going to talk about today. Letting your very lives be worshipped. <clears throat> so let's build a little bit of framework around, around this. First and foremost, the most important thing that we need to wrap our heads around is this. God made all of creation, everything, for one specific purpose, to give God glory. Or another way to say this would be that if every created thing is intrinsically designed so that by doing its creaturely activity, whatever it's designed to do, it is in its very nature worshiping God. Well, how do we know this? That's easy. There's lots of Scripture that talks about this. First of all, God created the world in Genesis 1, and every time He created something, He called it good and pleasing. And then from there, it says in Psalms 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Psalm 96, 11, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. In other words, let creation worship. Romans 1, 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. And so, from what that sounds like, as squirrels do their squirrely things, they are in worship to God. As they're collecting nuts, right? And they're storing up for their winter harvest. As bees buzz and pollinate. As the flowers bloom in the spring, as lightning cracks in the sky, every aspect of that is worship to God. 
by its intrinsic nature as being created by God. It is doing what it was designed to do. Therefore, the question we need to remember is this. Why would we, who are a very part of God's creation, in fact, considered the jewel in His crown of creation, as described in Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 and and elsewhere, are we not designed to worship as well? And mind you, I'm not talking here at the moment about what we say to God in worship, but literally in the intrinsic nature of what it means to be human. So that lends to the question, what are we humans to do in order to be worshipful? Thankfully, Genesis 1 and 2 lay that out for us very clearly. Biblical scholars call this our creational or cultural mandate. God took us humans and placed us into His garden a.k.a. his creation, right? To till it and to keep it. In other words, our God-given design is initially twofold. One, caretake God's creation. We're called to be stewards of God, of what God has created and called good. By keeping it, God is calling us, in other words, to help creation sing. It's creaturely worship to God by doing what it's designed to do. So effectively, our jobs would be to help everything in creation successfully worship. Number two, we're called to be co-creators with God. In the original creation, God loaded the world with capital P, potential. That's actually a science physics term that basically means that is something with, is loaded with energy, ready to explode. And that's what God did with creation. He loaded it with potential. That means that when we look at something in creation, our God-given creative juices begin to flow so that we start to see the creative potential of what could be. In other words, what happens if we add heat to this ore and we get iron? And what happens if we refine it into steel? And what if we take that steel and lay beams of it across rivers and form bridges? Or what if we round it into wheels or build high radio towers or make minute circuitry? From accountants crunching numbers to drivers hauling trucks, builders making houses, parents raising children, winemakers making wine, engineers designing buildings, teachers raising up generations, and governments managing communities. All of this is creating culture. All of this is tilling the earth. And so God's created design for us as one of His creatures is both to steward and to keep His creation, as well as to co-create new things out of His creation. And when we do these things well... It is an act of worship because we are working out of who God made us to be. But God also stitched in us from the very beginning a third aspect of our calling as humans, intelligent worship. You see, out of every aspect of creation, God designed us to be decidedly unique. God designed us to reflect on all of God's creation and see it in its varied splendor and mystery and beauty, and then offer up to God praise 
by saying to God how amazing he is for creating such a masterpiece as this. Now let me show you something amazing in Scripture about this calling of ours to worship. One of my favorite New Testament scholars is N.T. Wright. He has an amazing way of opening up Scripture to us common folk to help us understand what's going on. And in this case, it was a life changer for me. So turn with me to Revelation 4. Oftentimes when we think about Revelation, we think about end times and the whole thing is kind of weird and scary and we don't exactly know what to do with it. But there's a lot more going on in Revelation than meets the eye. So, N.T. helped me understand one major thing that this starts to lay out in a big picture. He says that on, if you think about heaven and earth, there's a way to think about it. You know, there's like Scripture describes it as like going up into the clouds. And, you know, science is like, well, yeah, I mean, the cosmos goes on to forever. So is God beyond that? What is it? N.T. says it a little bit differently. He says... Think of heaven and earth as kind of like two sides of a coin. And there's this barrier separating us so that we can't see heaven. But heaven and earth are interrelated and interlocked so that when something happens on earth, it happens in heaven. And there's this relationship between the two. But because of our brokenness, we can't see what's happening in heaven. Really, the only one who has so far is Jesus you know, who has traveled back and forth. And we can see that after his resurrection, how he seems to jump in and out, like he's physically changed somehow as he jumps between heaven and earth. It's a kind of this amazing picture. But it's hard for us to wrap our heads around. But this clarifies some things for us. In Revelation 4, it paints the picture of what is actually happening in heaven now. So let me read this. So it starts out with this, after this I look, because he had some earlier visions, and then those visions ended, and now he says, after this I looked, and I saw this new vision. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. He got to see the other side. And the voice I heard uh, speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the spirit, and therefore before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had an appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These were the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, 
who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they were created and have their being. What's being laid out here is a picture of what is happening on the throne or in the throne room of God now. This picture of heaven that we get a glimpse of here. And what we see in the midst of this is uh, a couple particular features. There's a lot that I, there's just too much to talk about, but there's, I'm going to focus on a couple things. One, the four living creatures that are th- surrounding the throne, they represent at the very seat right before God, all of creation on earth. Those are a representation of the animal kingdom, of the world as we know it here on earth before the throne, and it is acting in worship before God. And then next to them is the 24 elders, the 12 tribes. Basically, they represent uh, the, the kingdom people, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples are sitting before God in worship and they see creation and they worship God as we worship God in what we're doing. And you see that aspect of intelligent worship as they're reflecting on all of creation and offer up praise and thanksgiving to God. And so what we see is this is happening right now. So as we do our humanly thing, we are offering up worship to God. Creatures, as they're doing their, their creaturely thing, are, are before the throne room of God in this representation, in this image. It's beautiful to think that our actions now are literally standing at the face of God in worship. It's super significant. But it doesn't stop there. Because then we go into Revelation 5, the same, the same image, the same story continues, but it starts to break things out a little bit more. <clears throat> then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. What's going on here? In God's hands, as as it uh, unfolds, we see it at the end of Revelation 5 going into Revelation 6. We see the scroll of the future, of God's future plans for His creation, for everything. And He's holding it in His hands and He says, who's who's ready to open this? Who's ready to move into the future? But no one is worthy to open the scroll. And it seems that everything has come to a complete halt. Nothing in heaven and earth is worthy to move God's creation into the next phase of the great plan. Why? Because they're all broken. You see, on the flip side, 
of the coin, Genesis 3 changed everything in every way. What do we remember about Genesis 3? If we truly are to worship God, not as robots, we need to be given a choice to worship God. We reflect on God's creation and worship God in both word and deed by being truly humans. That worship becomes real. But what did humanity do? We chose to worship ourselves instead of God. As it says, we wanted to be like God. And as it says in Romans 1, we gave up the truth for a lie. And that introduced sin everywhere. We cast blame on others. We judged and compared and dehumanized. God even destroyed part of His creation which worshipped Him by killing the animals just to give us clothes, skins of these animals to hide our shame. It affected everything. It says the very ground which we were supposed to till and to keep now is impacted by sin and would instead produce for us thorns and thistles. And we would labor strenuously to produce anything good. And we would fail as much as we would succeed. And the taint of wickedness affected everything. And so on the heavenly side in Revelation 5, it says, no one was found worthy. In verse 4, it goes on to say, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Don't we weep bitterly today for the travesty we witness around us that humanity has caused? From our home lives, to our civic lives, to our work lives, to our inner lives, every aspect of our lives, of how we live and move and work in this world has been figuratively and literally been tainted by sin. Romans 8.20, for creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, us. But thankfully, the story doesn't stop there. Let's continue to read the rest of Revelation 5. <clears throat> Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion, the tribe of Judah, or of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out to all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Again, this connection of heaven and earth happening right now. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you are slain and with your blood you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nations. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I took 
And all right, then I looked and heard the voice of the many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all of them saying to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb be praise and glory and, uh, and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Did you notice that? Everything on earth and everything in heaven and all of the people worshipped Jesus. Not just us. All of creation. Let's break that out a little bit. Jesus, the perfect lamb who was slain, victor over the grave, the new true Adam, the first true human, is worthy to open the scroll of the future. It has changed everything. That change began 2,000 years ago on the resurrection morning. As it says in the Gospel of John, it took place on the first day of the week. That's a clear reference back to Genesis 1. The old creation has passed away and the new creation has begun. What we witness here in Scripture is no small gospel. This story of good news is not about saving souls to go to sit on a cloud somewhere. This is about God reclaiming and redeeming all of creation at cosmic scale. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. The Son is the, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And before, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, right? He is the first of the new creation so that he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself what? All things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God, God did not say that He was pleased to reconcile to Himself our souls and scrap the rest of creation. This one, this creation that He originally created and loved and called good before the fall. No, in Colossians it says that through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile to Himself everything. And so if that's the question, that poses a question to us have our jobs, as God originally designed them to be, laid out in Genesis 1, to be stewards and culture makers, has that changed on this side of the cross? What I'm seeing in Scripture is the answer is no. In fact, for us Christians, being tilling and keeping God's creation has taken on a whole new level of importance because He has called us and is equipping us to be part of His redemptive work in creation around the world. Look again at Revelation 5.10. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign where? On earth. So what does it mean to be priests? 
I think in this case, it means to be intercessors of a broken world, to help bring healing. I think it means leading creation and offering up worship to the Creator and Redeemer again, helping all of God's broken and now potentially redeemed creation praise God in its creaturely way. We are driven by God's grace, redeemed in Christ's blood, and equipped by the Spirit to help every aspect of the world to sing to God again. Romans 8, 18-21. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And in that final day, at the present where God closes and brings that process of redemption to completion, Isaiah 55 says it beautifully. You will go out in joy. You will be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst forth into song before you. And the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of the briars, the myrtles will grow. This will be to the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. And finally, we see in Revelation 21, God melding back together heaven and earth back into one as God comes to dwell with His people on earth. And you know what's cool? Look at Isaiah 60. This one gets me pumped. It's used as a foretelling of the final day of the current age and the beginning of the new days. It reflects Revelation 21 and its vision of light and splendor and being in the presence of God. But it also says the kings of the earth will bring to God the fruits of the nations. Who are the kings? Well, in Psalm 8, it says it's us, right? In Isaiah 60, it describes that these kings of the earth bring the cedars of Lebanon and the ships of Tarshish and the herds of camels from Midian and gold from Sheba, and they will be presented to God as an offering. But today, it might read the best of our cultures, our prized crops, our architectural splendors, our masterful artworks and music, which I believe will include everything from Lauren Daigle to Mozart to Springsteen, our technologies, our governments, our leadership styles, our vehicles, everything will come before God. And we will present them to God as an offering, the works of our hands, and we will bow before and worship Him. And you know what I desire for Him to say to me on that day, you know, Greg, how you designed that company, how you cared for your staff, how you really cared about quality and creativity in your product, how you loved your neighbors, how you raised your family. Well done, good and faithful servant. And he will take the stuff from my life and he will refine it into what is truly good. And it will become part of the splendor of God's finished new creation. That is what I work for. That is what I wish for. And that's what drives me. And therefore, that is ultimately my worship. 
everything matters. Because if it matters so much to God that He would die for it, that it might be redeemed to Him, it should matter to us. Then all of a sudden, this opens up a whole new perspective on life and purpose. And this conversation, of course, could go in a whole lot of different directions at this point. How we do families, how we do homes, how we do neighborhoods, how we do cities, how we do science and technology and medicine and sports, and even how we do church and why we do church as a training ground for doing everything else. But for the sake of narrowing down, our focus has been on work, right? Looking at this aspect that is literally one-third of our lives, our work lives. And it's important to realize that as we go into work, whatever that work we're called into is a calling, is worship. That, that's, that is, our worship no longer is stuck on Sunday, but our worship becomes every day. It is an opportunity to take the work of our hands, whether we're architects or engineers or scientists or garbage men or whatever it is, we are there to worship in our work to bring redemption and hopefulness and opportunity to let creation shine through our efforts. And there's all sorts of cool organizations and things that talk about this. There's the one called the Theology of Work Project, the great, great website, great tools. Another one is Kingdom at Work, as well as Christian business organizations in all sorts of different fields. But I just want to lay out in our few minutes remaining uh, just a couple big concepts. When I was first starting out after college, I uh, worked for a guy named Howie. He had a physician recruitment company, and I was his IT guy. And, uh, um, and my desk was next to him, and he really became a mentor for me because he was saying that, like, look, we as Christians um, put on a different lens, right? We got Scripture in one hand. We got we got the world in the other, and we need to look at everything through the eyes of Scripture. Because if there's this thing um, in, in theologians talk about called common grace, you know, we saw it in Colossians where it said that Jesus literally holds all things together, right? By His grace, whether they are redeemed or not, the very molecules of the world are being held together by, by Jesus. And so His common grace flows out into every aspect of life. And so good things pop up, kind of like that farm in Nicaragua. You know, they didn't realize, per se, that they were worshiping God in their work, but they were, right? Because they were being truly human at that time. Yeah, of course, they have fallen parts of them. You know, no one's perfect without Christ. But what we see is glimpses of hope. And so he was saying, when you're in your work, it doesn't mean you have to, like, create a completely Christian version of the engineering or science or music, whatever it is, because some of that stuff is really good, you know, and you can take it and use it and celebrate it because of common grace. But then the parts that are broken, that's when we really shine, right? Because we bring redemption to that. Okay, so this field is really good, but look at how they treat their employees. Look at how they they manage the, their resources. Look at what they do to creation, you know, all of this stuff. 
Like, let's take those parts and redeem that. This idea of how they do leadership, how they organize their company, that's some good stuff, you know? So let's use that. But let's redeem these parts and make it better, you know? That's what we as Christians are bringing. That's specific grace where God is working through us to bring redemption into the broken parts. So we have the opportunity to have this even bigger lens where we get to see every aspect of culture and don't just assume that it's either all good or all bad because God works in amazing ways down the middle through common grace. But the bad parts, that's when we really start to hum, right? That's when we can really start to think about, all right, what does it mean to truly care for staff in a way that God intended it to be, you know, on and on. It could happen in all sorts of ways. So as we look at our work, we think about some big concepts of um, where, um, or of like how we think about how God has called us, where God has placed us. And it could be anything from your neighborhood McDonald's, you know, to the CEO of some big company, right? Because God will work through you where you're at. And God is expecting you to work with where you're at, right? That is our worship. And so there's three big P's that I'm going to just mention here before we run out of time. The first one is people, right? So God has placed um, people in our lives in all of these places. And so we need to think about them wholly, you know? Yeah, we can evangelize at work, but if we don't lead them well, if we don't love them with where they're at, if we don't partner with them in the hard work of whatever it is, building roads, you know, if we don't love them through that, they will never see the gospel, right? But so the first one is love everyone. Bob Goff has a great book labeled Love Everyone. That's, it's a fantastic one. And model it in action, right? Love is contagious. People will look at you. You know, they walk into our coffee shop. I don't have Jesus on the walls, you know, but they walk in and they're like, something's different, you know, about this place. The number of people like walk in and they're like, boy, this just feels good. Because what we've done is created like a welcoming environment to everybody. Because if we turn them off because of like already preconceived stereotypes of who Jesus is and all of that stuff, like we've lost them. But if we love on them by making them something really good that they can celebrate, like the reason that I make you the best drink I can make it is because I love you. God loves you. Therefore, I love you. That's why I'm going to give you quality. That's why I'm not going to fill your body with corn syrup and whatever else, you know, because I care about all of you, you know, that's, that's what, you know, we get to do. And we also seek to understand. There's a whole lot, you know, Christians are really good, sorry to say, at judging, right? And so if we, we can't really work to redeem if we don't truly understand. And so when we're working with people, we've got to listen. You know, listen is like 90%. And if you, if you trust in the Holy Spirit, right, to do, it, to do the Spirit's job, that 10% is all you need because the Spirit's going to do the rest to say the right words and to get them thinking in the right way, you know. So that's people. The second one is place, right? So I've talked about this a lot. Land, like what we do, like 
with what we've been given, how we steward, how we care for the land, how we help it celebrate is part of our redemptive work. And so that thinks about where we're getting our product from, how we're doing it, what we're doing with our waste, how we're thinking about every aspect of our companies and our works and our home, all of that stuff, because we want creation to sing to God, right? And so all of that starts to matter. And uh, um, there are things in, uh, you're starting to see on some boxes you receive, there are different companies, Dan and Yogurt, all sorts of these companies that are doing this thing called B Corp certification. This is where companies start to take seriously about how they're going to change the world through um, uh, how they care for land, how they care for people. This like kind of this big picture, B Corps. You should look it up. It's really fascinating. Their unit using it based on this uh, internationally global um, development goals. It's, it's this really cool phenomenon. But it's not Christian. Is there a lot of it that's good? Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm going to join like 75% of it, and then I'm going to add Jesus on top and make it even better, right? And so that's what we get to do in the midst of it. So, and the last one is power. Oftentimes we find ourselves in position, whether it's leadership, whether it's um, local government, whether it's being a manager at McDonald's, whether it's um, coaching a sports team, we find ourselves in these positions of power. And this is a very, very dangerous place to be, right? Because all of a sudden people are looking up to us. People are, have expectations from us. You know, I've, I've said uh, time and time again that this is one of the hardest things that I do is work with staff. And uh, I love my staff, you know, and, but, it, but it is easily the hardest thing to do because everybody is coming with all of their problems, all of their challenges, all of their stuff. And then in the midst of that, we have, um, I also say that it is my favorite part of my job because we get to offer a place of, of, of redemption and love and community through that. So, all right, people, place, power. Think about the role that you have in communities, in your neighborhood, and use them for the glory of God. Because in the long run, it comes down to the parable of the talents, right? God has equipped you with people, position, place. What are you doing with it? I pray that you will use it for the glory of God. Thank you all. <clears throat>